Good morning, everyone. My thanks to Zach, our team, for leading us in worship and song. And now let's worship in the Word, shall we? It's uh, We've been in this unapologetic series for some weeks, covering various topics, things that we are unapologetic concerning. Today, that subject is eternity. And we'll discover that eternity, like all of these other topics, ultimately leads us to the feet of Jesus. Ultimately, they are gospel issues. And today, we'll ask and answer a really practical question about just one aspect of eternity, and that's this. What happens when a believer dies? Our approach will simply be to discover what the Bible says. Because when we use biblical words in biblical ways to understand and apply biblical truths, our lives will be transformed. We'll be on solid ground, and God will be greatly glorified. I know there's a lot of ideas out there about what happens after death, what's beyond. Some of them are rooted in Scripture. Many are not. I just believe that when we return to the Word and see what it teaches us, that combination of grace and truth will set our lives upon the solid rock. There will be confidence. There will be hope. There will be joy. There will be expectation in our lives. So let's begin by looking at some key truths. I have given you a handout with uh, some things that we're going to talk about. I've given you the Scripture passages under these points. I'm going to be unable to go as in-depth as I would like on many of these Scriptures because we'd be here all morning. But I do invite you at your leisure to look over these passages because I believe, as God's Word says it will do, it will add insight to your life, will add instruction, correction, reproof. So our first passage in our notes is found in Luke chapter 23, and it's the story of the two thieves. Maybe you're familiar with that. The two thieves that were crucified with Jesus. The gospel narratives tell us that both of those thieves, at one point in this crucifixion, were blaspheming Jesus, both of them. But something happened to one of them. He had a change of heart. He had a a change of mind about who Jesus was. And he turns to Jesus and he says, will you remember me? When you come into your kingdom, before that, he tells the other thief, look, we're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says something to him that's just echoes through the ages, full of grace and truth. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. 
So if I'm a believer, when I die, this is the first truth, and it's actually the foundational truth. If we're a believer, when we die, here's the first truth about eternity. I'll be with Jesus. I'll be with Him. That's what Jesus said to him. Today. And when will that occur? Well, when will I be with Jesus if I'm in Christ? It will be the moment I die. The very last breath I take. It's not a long time in the future. It's the moment of our last breath. Immediately we'll be in the presence of the Lord. And where will I be with the Lord? Well, Jesus said today, you'll be with me in paradise, the third heaven, the realm where God is, angelic beings, heavenly hosts. The second passage is found in Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19. It's the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Maybe you remember that story as well. This rich man lived well. He ate well. In fact, Lazarus was fed with the scraps from this man's table. He was in such bad shape as he sat at the gate that dogs would lick his sores. But what we learn from that passage is that when that poor man died, angels carried him to Abraham's side. And so what we learn from this passage is that for the believer, death means to be carried by angels to Abraham's side. When Lazarus died, these angels carried him, other versions of the Bible say, to Abraham's bosom. And this word means to Abraham's lap, to his chest, to his breast. It means to the closest place to Abraham. So what's the picture? This is a circumlocution for being in heaven because Abraham is the exemplar of faith in the Old Testament. Lazarus is at home with the Lord. So when we die, what did Jesus teach us in the story? We're carried by angels. What a precious thought. We're carried by angels to Abraham's side. We will be with Jesus that day in paradise. And for the believer, death means to go to a place where we will be comforted. The Scripture tells us in verse 25 of that chapter that Lazarus went to a place where he would be comforted. Church, this is so important because Scripture not only tells us where and what we're going to experience, it tells us how we're going to feel. The word comfort can also be translated encouragement. So watch this. The Bible says that the moment we die, we'll be with Jesus. That day in paradise, Abraham and other believers will be there. Many scriptures talk about when a believer dies, that they're gathered to their people. People that have gone before us that follow Christ. And we'll feel comforted. We'll feel encouraged. 
The third passage I want to point out today is Philippians chapter 1. Paul is writing from prison. I don't want you to miss that. He's chained to a Roman guard. He's talking about how he believes that for him to stay in the body, to live, is important to the church at Philippi. But then he says this, and you, I'm sure you know this verse. And again, this is more about how we feel. He says, for me to live is Christ. It's good for you, church, at Philippi, if I live. Sounds arrogant, but it was true. But he says, if I die, it's gain. So that's the next point. For a believer, to die means to experience gain, not loss. So whenever I die and I'm carried by angels into the presence of the Lord, I will not feel a sense of loss. I will feel as if I have gained value, meaning, purpose. And life has been added at that very moment. And then Paul says this in verse 23 of that chapter. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So Paul is saying, to die as a believer is to experience something far better. Can you think of the very best days or day of your life? I mentioned this in the first service. What immediately comes to my mind is the day of of Becky and I's my wife, our marriage, and I saw her back at the entrance for the very first time in in that beautiful dress, and she had that. Do you know your your spouses have this certain posture that you know it's them, right? And I I was looking at her, and I thought, that is fine. That's the epitome of fineness, if there's such a word. And so it was one of the very best days of my life. I think about when I came to faith in Christ. I think about when our children were born and our grandchildren. Maybe you can can think about those days too. What's the best day that you've ever had on this earth? I will tell you, beloved, when your eyes close in this world and they open in the next, that day will be nothing compared to that. what, what that moment will be. It'll be far better. Our next passage is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 16 all the way through 5, 10. I can only cover a few uh, verses of that, but Paul's speaking about how to not lose heart. He was experiencing a downturn, if you will, in his life. Some of us would say that he was depressed. He was spiritually bankrupt, emotionally bankrupt. So he talked about not losing heart, how to have courage. He talked about his body being a temporal dwelling like a tent as opposed to an eternal dwelling in heaven that God had created for him. He talks about being of good courage. He says we are of good courage, verse 8 in chapter 5. But we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So the next thing you notice is for a believer to die means to be away from the body. Whenever you go to a funeral and there's a body in that casket, 
The Bible says, if you're a believer, is that person there? No. They're absent. They're away from the body. Because what happens? Immediately upon my physical death, my soul, my spirit, the eternal part of me is carried by the angels into the presence of the Lord. I will feel comforted there. Other believers will be there. I will feel as if I've gained, not lost. It'll be far better than anything I have ever experienced on earth. My body is here, but my soul, my spirit is immediately in the presence of Jesus. I'm away from the body. So does it matter whether I'm buried or cremated? No. Does it matter if I'm lost at sea and the sharks eat me? I said, insert laughter right there. That's my first joke. So <laughs> when I write this stuff, I, you know, I need somebody, I need some clues. No, does it matter if I'm in an airplane and that blows up and, and my body is incinerated or there's a terrorist bomb that goes off and there's nothing left of me. It does not matter. Scripture says that at that moment of my death, I'll be away from the body. I'll be absent from that body that just died. And here's the next note. It's number nine. The biblical word, the Apostle Paul says, for a believer to die means to be at home with the Lord. I love that image. The Bible says that when I die, the way I'm going to feel is as if I'm finally home. We weren't created to live in this world. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt like this is just not my home? I don't belong here. I don't fit. Especially as a believer, a follower of Christ. Have you ever had those moments where you've been traveling maybe for an extended period of time and you finally get home and you open the door and you ask, I'm so glad I'm going to sleep in my bed tonight. That's a weak imagery, but it's, that, it's what the Apostle Paul is saying, that we will finally feel like we are home. That leads me to say two things. That in light of the biblical passages we've looked at already, we need to say, that there's no such thing as purgatory. Purgatory is not a biblical word. Purgatory is not a biblical concept. Some of you have heard of purgatory. Maybe some of you have not. I put a definition in your outline. Some believers say that it's the place where the souls of believers go. Now watch this. To be further purified from sin until they are ready to be admitted into heaven. Not only is it not a biblical word or a biblical, not a biblical concept, but watch this. It undermines what salvation in Christ means. Because let me ask you a question. 
When Jesus died on the cross for sinners, how much of the sin debt did he pay? All of it. He paid it all. So if he paid it all, then why would we have to pay anything more in a place like purgatory? The only way a purgatory could exist is if our salvation somehow depended on us, our works, our penance, what we do. But what those of us who are in Christ know is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul, when he wrote to the churches in Ephesus, Asia Minor, says that salvation is not our works. It's not our own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the notion, the concept, the word, the idea of purgatory is not a biblical thought. Neither is the notion of soul sleep. The notion of soul sleep is a misunderstanding of Scripture. It's the idea, as the definition in your notes say, that when believers die, they go into a state of unconscious existence. It takes literally what the Scripture intends to be taken metaphorically. The Bible oftentimes says such and such person has gone to sleep. Now what that means, and the context determines it, but what that most often means is the person has died. In the Old Testament, this idiom was frequent. They would say, so-and-so slept with their fathers. So what does it mean? They died. And so the notion of soul sleep, that when a believer dies, that he goes into this state of unconscious existence, it doesn't square with Scripture. It doesn't square with the idea that on the day we die, we're in the presence of the Lord. We are in heaven. We feel comfort. We feel gain. We feel something that is far better. We feel as if we're home. So both purgatory and soul sleep, not biblical truths. I can't leave you here today without talking about the resurrection. So I want you to look at one passage, last passage with me. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 51. And if you're able, I invite you to stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. I also invite you to read it out loud as Paul is talking to the church in this chapter about first importance things. When the Apostle Paul says something is first importance, we should pay attention, should we not? He's talking to them about the gospel. He's now, he's covering a plethora of topics, and and really, this is the most, he gets to the most important thing at the end. So begin, if you would, with verse 51. Father, I thank you for your timeless, God-breathed, eternal, true word. We ask you, Lord, to bless the hearing, the reading, the teaching, the understanding and the application of your word. Thank you, Father, for the gift that it is in our lives. May it be profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
So Paul says, behold, with an exclamation point. This is, this is a critical juncture here. It's a declarative. It's with emphasis. Paul's saying, I want you to pay attention to this. He says, I tell you a mystery. Now, a mystery in the New Testament is something that was not previously revealed, but that God has now revealed and is being made known. So the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you now the truth about what's going to happen. Here it is. We shall not all sleep. (laughs) What does that mean? What does it mean? We shall not all what? Die. We shall not all die. So what he's saying here is that when Jesus comes back, there's still going to be believers on the earth. But whether we're alive or have died previously in Christ, here's the next part of the verse. We shall all be changed. I have to stop right here and say I've heard of a church nursery that had this sign. This was their theme verse, what I just read. They had this sign above their door to the entrance of the nursery. This was their theme. The sign said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You know, 8 o'clock didn't even laugh at all. I mean, they laughed. I had to explain to them what I was trying to say there, right? That's joke number two right there. That's it. I thought that was pretty good doesn't have anything to do with what Paul's teaching here. But I thought it was pretty good nonetheless. We shall not all die, he's saying. We don't know when Jesus is coming again, but when he comes again, there will still be believers on the earth. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all, whether we are living or whether we have died previously in Christ and our soul and spirit is at home with the Lord, we shall all be changed. Well, what is that change? The biblical words are this. It's a transformation. It's a redemption of our bodies. It's a glorification. It's receiving our resurrection body. And how will that change happen? Look at verse 52 with me. It will happen, the scripture says, in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. Can you imagine that? I can't even fathom creation when I go out to the hill country and look up at the thousands of galaxies that we see. Can you imagine that trumpet resounding throughout all of creation? When that trumpet sounds, the dead, those whose soul and spirit are with Christ, the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. In other words, when Jesus comes, those that have been at home with the Lord, their soul and spirit have been at home with the Lord, will be raised imperishable. They will receive their resurrection. They're transformed. They're glorified. They're redeemed body. He says, we shall be changed. All who are alive will be changed. Why? Look at verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. You see, our bodies are born into sin. All of us are born into sin. 
Those of us that follow Christ have a payment that's been made for that sin, but this body is still corrupted. And a corrupted body cannot inherit the kingdom of God in eternity. So we will be instantly changed, those that are alive from their mortal bodies, to an imperishable, glorified, resurrected body. So what have we learned here? These are the last notes in your handout. We've learned that at the coming of Jesus Christ, the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. What a glorious thought. Even so, Jesus, come quickly. Jesus spoke of the resurrection when He was on earth. If you remember the story about Lazarus dying, he was late to his funeral. The funeral of his dear friend, one he loved. Martha and Mary, Lazarus' sisters, who Jesus loved as well, sent him word that Lazarus is dying. Would you come? I think about... uh, I think about receiving word that someone I love is dying and I, I would not waste a second going. But, but Jesus didn't go quickly and it was disconcerting. It was concerning to the sisters and they asked Him, you know, if you'd have been here, He wouldn't have died. And Jesus tells them what's going to happen. And then when He sees Martha, Martha was the get-her-done woman. Do you remember that? We need Martha's, do we not? She gets criticism sometimes, but hey, we need people to get stuff done. She said that to Jesus, and Jesus said this to her. And what an audacious statement He makes. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then He asks the question that echoes through the ages to us today in this place. He says, do you believe this? Listen, church, if we're all honest, we've all had doubts, have we not? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I don't want you to lie in church. But we've had doubts. What happens What happens when we die? What happens to those that I love? I mean, we have intellectual doubts. We have personal doubts. But beloved, there's evidence. And really the strongest evidence for me, church, is what Jesus says. And because He's been raised, the Apostle Paul In that chapter I was reading earlier, he says, look, if Christ hadn't been raised, we of all people, those who follow Jesus, we're the ones to be pitied. We've placed all of our faith and hope and trust on the fact that that statement is true. When Mary, she was the more contemplative sister, the one who sat at Jesus' feet, right? Or like John says, the one who Jesus loved. When she comes, she asked Jesus the same question. We don't know her posture necessarily, although she was at his feet. But when Jesus sees her weeping, please don't miss this church. 
when he sees her weeping and those that were with her weeping over the death of his friend, Scripture says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Trouble means to be in mental distress. What I don't want us to miss this morning is that when we are troubled, Christ is troubled. When we're moved, He's moved. When we're facing situations in life, maybe even death, when we're in that place, He is with us. The writer of Hebrews says that we have a high priest who's able to empathize. It's the idea of having compassion, having to suffer alongside, to walk alongside. He's compassionate with us. There's not a situation in life that you and I will face that the, for those of us who follow Jesus, that He's not there. That He's not right there. Including our deaths. And then after He is troubled, He stands before the tomb of Lazarus. Many of you remember the story. He says, Lazarus, come forth. He raises Him from the dead. So we get this incredible picture of the 100% man Jesus, who's greatly troubled and distressed at our troubles. And then on the other hand, He's the resurrection and the life. He raises Him from the dead. Glory to His name. He said, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Let us pray. Father, I thank You for your timeless, God-breathed Word, your eternal Word that's unchanging, that's true, that's no mixture of error. And Father, thank You for teaching us about what happens when we face death. What that journey will be like. The assurances that You give us. King Jesus, thank You that You are the resurrection and the life. Lord, I pray that there are those within the sound of my voice this morning who aren't sure about that, that today would be a day that they would come to You with their doubts, with their troubles, and know that just as You extended grace to that thief on the cross in the last moments of his life, that grace is available today. Forgiveness of sin. Eternal presence with You. I pray these things in the most powerful name ever uttered on this earth, the name of Jesus of Nazareth. We pray. Amen. We're going to move into the Lord's Supper and we're going to sing a new song today. It's the goodness of God. It's You'll hear the verse. You'll hear the words in a minute. It's incredible in its content. The song tells us that all of my life, He's been faithful. All of my life, He's been so good. So what I invite you to do as you come while we're singing and receive the elements, 
of the Lord's Supper, I invite you as you go back to your seat, as you worship, to think about the ways that He's been good to you, to think about the ways that He's been faithful. Because Jesus told us, when as often as you do this Lord's Supper, remember me. Will you remember Him today? Will you remember that even in the midst of your darkest hour, that He was there? Will you remember Him that in the greatest day of your life, that there's something far better that awaits? Come and receive those elements and let's worship together, shall we? Much said in the Scripture, as we've seen today about what happens when a believer dies. Certainly hopeful, gain, presence of the Lord, comfort. But for those of us that are left behind, we can, we can have an understanding of that, although we've not walked yet through the valley of the shadow of death. But we mourn, do we not? And I can't help but think on that night as he, as Jesus taught us the Lord's Supper and the New Covenant, the first thing He did, do you remember? He washed their feet. When I think about the One who created the universe and all that's in it, who has the authority over all of creation, the most powerful man, because He was truly man that's ever lived, stooping to do the job of the least, even when I mourn, I trust in the reality of what He said, that I am the resurrection and the life. I trust that. Do you? This was the symbol of His body. If you hold it in your hand and you, and you remember what He said, He said, my physical body, my, I'm 100% man, I'm going to be crushed for you, God is going, it's going to please God that I'm crushed, which is amazing. I'm going to be separated from Him for a moment. I do it because I love you. Take and eat. The enemy throughout the ages, and we have an enemy. Does everybody know that? The enemy throughout the ages has really tried to convince all of us in some way, form, or fashion that we can somehow pay for a debt that we owe of sin. But we talked about it earlier. How much did his blood, how much of the sin debt did he pay? He paid all of it. Glory to his name. And he said this, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for you for the payment of sin. Drink ye all of it. O oh, King Jesus, we place all of our faith, all of our hope, all of our trust is in you and you alone. We thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. And that no matter what we're experiencing or what we're going through that you are troubled when we're troubled. 
You walk alongside us. You lead us beside still waters, green pastures. You restore our souls. Thank you, King Jesus. Let us worship together with Him. So what would unapologetic loyalty to Christ and His Word look like in your life in regards to eternity? Well, I want to borrow the words of Paul and I'll explain what I mean by just briefly. I'm going to say that it should mean for us to live is Christ. You say, what does that mean? Well, what we do here on earth matters in eternity, not in regards to our salvation. Please hear me. If someone just took that sound bite, it would be. No, we. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Amen? But what we do matters, and here's why. The scripture gives us some really tantalizing clues about that. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. It's where those of us who follow Jesus will stand before him and give an account of our lives. I shared this at the early service. There have been moments in my life where that was a terrifying thought. Maybe you too. But maybe it's because I'm older. Now I find great assurance in that. To stand before Him and know that He will be my advocate. But because I will stand before Him, because rewards will be given, it's, it's an amazing concept. What I do here matters. What you do if you're a follower of Christ matters. To live is Christ. So it means something like this. Is your very being wrapped up in Him? Your Lord and your Savior. Do you trust Him in all circumstances? Do you serve Him? Do you witness for Him? In every way, are you devoted and dependent on Him and Him alone? In your daily walk, is your only hope, your only purpose, your only reason for living, Christ? You see, we live with one foot in the natural and we live one foot in the supernatural. This is not our home. We're here for God's purposes and plans, but this is not our home. And while we're here in this temporary dwelling, we live for Him. And as we've learned today, when we die, it's gain. There'll be elders here front with their wives. We'd love to pray for you. To, if you have any things you want to share with us, we'd be honored to do so. And as you go, may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may He lift up His countenance to you this day and give you His peace. And you are dearly loved. And God bless you today. You're dismissed.